What is wrong with the world? Why is it the way that it is? I'm guessing I'm not the first person that's ever posed this question to you. But think for a moment about what your answer would be. How would you answer that question to someone? Certainly not a new question. My guess is that people through all time have wondered the answer. And there's no shortage of answers either. A quick internet search will tell you that. It will list things for you like poverty, racism, pollution, climate change, terrorism. Is it possible that there is a single cause for these things? There's a popular story about a time when the Times in London, the newspaper, the Times sent out this very question to a number of editors and journalists and authors to see what they had to say. And the way the story is told, they received many long and eloquent answers to the question, stating their opinions on the matter. And one fairly well-known British author reportedly sent in a letter with a reply to the question that read this way. Dear sirs, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. I'm not sure that's exactly how the story unfolded, but it certainly sticks on the brain, doesn't it? I'm what's wrong with the world. Behind it is an assumption that there's something wrong with every one of us that leads to a broken world. I would say that in our text today, Jesus answers this very question in the way that he responds to the religious leaders of the day. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1, which you can find on page 842 of the Bibles provided. Our passage today is one of the longest confrontation passages in the entire book. And while it is the largest, it's not the first one. It's not the first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. You might remember back in chapter 2, there were a number of disagreements between them about the kind of fellowship Jesus surrounded himself with. He was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They also disagreed about the matter of Sabbath observance. And they also butted heads over, over the matter of forgiveness as well. Well, in our passage, this is a specific set of Pharisees. Describes them coming from Jerusalem. These are the big dogs. The religious authorities with the most elite education, most likely, of the day. And they've been investigating Jesus' ministry and the things that he's been saying as his ministry has exploded in the region. And we've heard about them in chapter 3. And what they were doing at that time was telling people who were following Jesus that he was performing miracles because he was possessed by a demon. Well, this time around, Jesus goes on the offensive, and he calls them hypocrites, which is offensive no matter who you're talking to. And the thing about hypocrites is no one thinks they are one, right? But especially the re religious leaders of the day who consider themselves to be the most pious or the most holy people. This is one of those stories where we get to see edgy Jesus. Because Jesus is a little bit prickly in this passage. He says sharp things that undermine their teachings. He does it in public. And 
in doing so, he points to a deeper problem in all of us. Let's read our passage together now. Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see what I mean by edgy Jesus, don't you? Back in chapter 3, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, his response to them was that a kingdom divided against itself could not stand. And by doing so, he was showing that his miracles were actually the very works of God. But in a sneaky way, he also showed that their opposition to Jesus meant that they were not with God, but against him. This passage makes that even more clear, as Jesus just outright says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Or verse 13, they make void the word of God by their tradition. He calls them hypocrites, which is no mild rebuke. To be a hypocrite means to be two-faced, to be a phony. It comes from a word or the idea of stage actors on stage playing a different part, wearing a mask. 
And no one wants to be thought of as a hypocrite, especially these Pharisees and scribes of the law. Inside the church, we do not want to be shy about our need for grace. We want to be extremely clear that if we call ourselves saints, it's not because we consider ourselves good people at all, but needy people saved by Christ's righteousness. But even still, I think because we consider ourselves religious today, because we claim to be God-fearers, we might be the most susceptible people to various forms of hypocrisy. So my goal in studying this passage with you is not to condemn you all as heretics, but to point to what Jesus says against the Pharisees and to draw out from it their pitfalls. I want to draw from this passage four pitfalls that lead to hypocrisy. Four things that have just a little bit of legalism behind them that if we're not careful about, lead us down the same trajectory. I think Jesus' teaching in this passage exposes these pitfalls as he rebukes the Pharisees and as he teaches the disciples. The main takeaway, the positive teaching from Jesus for us this morning is that we can't make ourselves clean or unclean because our hearts are already defiled. Therefore, we need new hearts. We can't make ourselves clean or unclean because our hearts are already defiled. Therefore, we need new hearts. I think you'll see that clearly as we go through the text. And my prayer is that reflecting on this passage will deepen your humility before God and increase your dependence upon the only person who can make our hearts clean, Jesus Christ. Four pitfalls that lead to hypocrisy. First, giving lip service to God while your heart is far from Him. Uh, This conflict begins over the matter of the washing of hands before a meal. And uh, this might confuse you because you might think it's good to wash before you eat. I wash before I eat. Uh, Generally, that's just a good habit, right? It helps prevent disease and good health. So why wouldn't they want to? Well, to understand this conflict, we need to know firstly the kind of washing here mentioned in this passage is not a matter of personal hygiene. So it has nothing to do with getting actual dirt off of your hands before eating. The the amount of water actually that was used in this kind of washing is about maybe a little bit more than what you could put on a tablespoon. It was purely an action done to symbolize ritual cleanliness. And the first thing to note about this washing was that it's actually not part of the law, but part of the tradition of the elders. Mark states that in verse 3. And the Pharisees themselves confirm this by their question in verse 5. Now, these traditions are most likely oral at this point, but they would eventually be summarized and recorded and uh, named the Mishnah later on in history. But they're not actually part of the law. The language of defilement and washing sounds very similar to Leviticus, where you have other laws about clean and unclean animals, for example, a whole host of other ceremonial rituals. Leviticus is an amazing book, but it is where a lot of quiet times go to die. Well, what you need to know for this text is that there are no requirements 
for regular people to do ritual washing before eating bread. The only people who are required to wash are the priests who wash before going into the holy place to prepare a sacrifice for the people. At best, these traditions were intended to be set up like a fence around the law, like a barrier to help people not come anywhere close to breaking the law. After all, the marketplace probably had unclean food and things like that. But as we'll see in the, in the following passage, their motives were far more legalistic and self-serving than that. They used their traditions to measure holiness, which grew to a point of conflating their traditions to obedience with the law itself. And that's the tradition that Mark refers to in verses 2 through 4, where he explains a few of their practices that involve not just washing hands, but washing vessels you eat with. And that, that little explanatory note is another indication that he's writing to maybe a non-Jewish audience or at least a mixed audience back in Rome who were unfamiliar with Jewish customs. So what's wrong with having tradition anyway? Doesn't it provide a nice safety net for people? Jesus quickly points out the problem by quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 29.13. The problem is you can follow all their traditions perfectly and still be far from God. You can obey these traditions and still have a hardened heart. It's a scathing response. Look again at verses 6 and 7. He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Their worship is in vain. It's self-deception. The praise that comes out of our lips means nothing if our hearts are far from God. And that's exactly what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of doing. Remember that Jesus sees our hearts. He, he's read the minds of the Pharisees in the past. He knows their motivation is not love for God, but is to be seen as devout in front of all the people, to be thought of by others as the most holy in the land, to maintain a status. And we know this because of what Jesus says elsewhere. Right? Throughout, think about the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. Uh, the, the word hypocrite in Pharisees is almost synonymous. He uses them as a bad example when teaching the disciples about disciplines. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Or he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for their lo- they love to stand out and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Or when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They honored God with their lips, pretending to be devout, while in secret their hearts were far off. Instead, Jesus instructs us to practice godliness in secret, so that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. That's not to say that there aren't or weren't good and and godly Pharisees, It's also not to say that we aren't capable of the same things. Satan loves to take even good things, like spiritual disciplines, and make our hearts proud over them. 
But by quoting Isaiah, Jesus is telling them they're making the same mistakes as their fathers who were judged because of their hard hearts and idolatry. They may have washed before every meal or said every daily prayer, but their hearts were far off. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap. Many have said that hell will be full of people who had perfect attendance at church. Because coming to church regularly, or reading your Bible daily, or reading a systematic theology book, whatever it would be, does not guarantee closeness to God. It doesn't mean your heart is engaged at all. It just means you've done those things. That's one of the reasons we take membership seriously in this church. We want to be sure that people don't join the church because they think they're earning God's favor by doing so. We want to make that extremely clear that you can only be saved by the finished work of Christ and not your own merit. Uh, We're going to have a baptism later in the service. Praise the Lord for that. And one of my goals with everyone who comes to be baptized is to make sure they understand that uh, there's nothing special about the water. And that baptism does not uh, cleanse them. It is only a representation of the work that God has already done in their heart. It's a, a visible picture or an image of death and new life. We seek to do these things intentionally to honor the Lord, but it doesn't matter for the person whose heart, whose heart is far from God. Friend, beware of honoring God with your lips or your actions while keeping your heart at a distance. God knows your heart. I want to be quick to point out, this doesn't mean that every Christian is on a spiritual cloud nine all the time, right? That's just not true. There are times where many of us just don't feel like worshiping or don't feel like reading the Bible, may not feel like praying. There are examples where uh, people articulate that in the Bible as well. But it's possible to cling to Jesus during those times and to be honest with him about that struggle. It's possible to sincerely desire greater affections for God, even if you feel dry spiritually. The times that we are feeling, or rather not feeling spiritual, those are the times that it's more important than ever to be in God's Word, or surrounded by community and in prayer. Our services are ordered, if you haven't noticed, they're ordered in a way that rehearses gospel truths. Use that order. Reflect upon it in your heart. Teach your heart to do likewise. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37 verse 4. Well, that's the first pitfall that leads to hypocrisy. Giving lip service to God while your heart is far from Him. The second pitfall that leads to hypocrisy is prioritizing human traditions over God's Word. Prioritizing human traditions over God's Word. Verses 8 through 13 make that very clear. Jesus says they've left the commandment of God for the commandments of men. And He even gives them an example. How? Verse 10. For Moses said, he's quoting the fifth commandment, Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, 
thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. The example Jesus brings up is called Corbin. And you might be wondering what that is. Mark has a very brief explanation. Uh, that is given to God. But the term is, is explaining someone dedicating something to God. So, for example, you could in your will dedicate your house to the temple so that when you died, the, the temple could acquire it and use it or sell it and use the profit for whatever they want to. Or if you were to die before using all your retirement and you wanted the rest of it to go to the synagogue, you could do that. And dedications of this kind meant that the person who made the dedication could still use the item, uh, but it would reserve the item so that it could only be used by that person or wherever it was dedicated. So it would remove it from all kinds of other uses. So Jesus points out the ways that people had taken advantage of it. It's, it's a loophole, a legal loophole, if you will, to get around obeying the fifth commandment. He points out clearly that it says to honor your father and mother. And he even quotes it in the negative. Anyone who doesn't do this uh, should be put to death. And it appears the Pharisees would use Corbin as an excuse to not care for parents. So just ima imagine for a moment your parents running out of money. And then you say to them, I'm sorry. I can't help you because I've already given my money to the Lord. I can't sell my motorcycle to help with these bills because it is Corbin. Can you imagine such wickedness all in the name of obeying the law, in the name of tradition? They had become so fixated on their rules that they forgot that the purpose of the law was to bless people. Instead of using tradition to help people understand and obey the law better, they created for themselves a way out of it. For Jesus, the core problem is that they prioritize their own commandments and traditions over God's. Jesus says that God's word is more authoritative than any command given by man. And Jesus is being a really good Baptist by doing that, by the way. Baptists have many flaws, but one thing we are known for is being the people of the book. We're pretty much allergic to adding anything else to it, like good Protestants. Allow me to mention some, perhaps, modern-day, extra-biblical restrictions that you might be familiar with. We don't have traditions in the same way, but I'm guessing you've heard some of these. If you're a real Christian, you'll vote this way. If you're a real Christian, you'll homeschool your kids. If you're a true Christian, you'll be a teetotaler. None of these things are bad by themselves. But to require it of people is simply to place the traditions of men above the word of God. Kids in the room, there are going to be times where the world tries to convince you to go against your parents' teaching. And there will be a time when you can make that decision for yourself as you grow. But until then, know that you obey God by obeying your parents and honoring them. Which is, according to Jesus, much more important. Parents, you have a tremendous responsibility. If God's word is the most important thing, then your responsibility to teach your kids uh, is, is huge, isn't it? Teach them with much patience. 
another modern example of maybe prioritizing human tradition or maybe trends over God's Word might be uh, this individualization of religion that's been popular over the last decades. For example, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. I'm a member of the universal church, therefore I don't need to be a member of the local church. Friends, you should absolutely seek a personal and individual relationship with God. But that doesn't cancel out the commands in Scripture to gather regularly, to pray for one another, to build up and edify one another. And pointing out Corbin, Jesus categorically rejects the idea of using one command in the Bible to negate other commands. And he categorically rejects human traditions as binding. And it's not as though Jesus was just talking about this one example, Corbin. He says at the end of verse verse 13, many such things you do. So brothers and sisters, beware of the pitfall of prioritizing any kind of human tradition over God's command. And of course, one brief caveat, I'm not saying this means you don't obey man. God placed authority in position. We're called to be good Citizens, what I'm talking about are human traditions, uh, prioritizing them over God's word. That's the second pitfall. Third pitfall leading to hypocrisy. Assuming your actions make you more or less pure before God. Assuming your actions make you more or less pure before God. After Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in verse 14, to, he turns to address the people. And he says, hear me, all, you, all of you, and understand. Which means he's about to teach a principle, the reason behind his statements. And that wording, hear me, all of you, and understand, it, it recalls an authoritative teaching of the law. It sounds very similarly to the Shema, doesn't it, of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's like after rebuking the Pharisees, for holding people to their own tradition above the law of God, Jesus now is going to teach them the true law. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Skip down to verse 18. Jesus is alone with the disciples, so they ask him to explain what he meant. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Thanks, Jesus. That's encouraging. And he says, Do you not not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus says, Since food does not go into the heart, but the stomach, then food can't defile you. Why? Because our stomachs don't drive our actions. He's building off of his teaching. Since he accused the Pharisees of going through the motions with a far-off heart, the heart is the core of the issue. The heart is the control center of the soul. It's what's inside that counts. That's a popular phrase you hear today. I think it's actually Ben and Jerry's slogan right now, as if uh, ice cream was good or healthy for you or something like that. Ironically, Jesus agrees. It is what's inside that counts. Unfortunately for us, what's inside is no good. 
And what comes out as a result is what defiles us. It's easy to just breeze over Mark's comment about all foods being declared clean. But what Jesus was doing here was revolutionary. There are accounts uh, just earlier in history of the Maccabean War where practicing Jews were basically martyred because they refused to eat anything unclean. That's the context that Jesus is speaking these things into. It's not just preference here. But by saying things, these things, Jesus is implying two things. First, that food cannot defile because we're already defiled. Food can't make us unclean. And praise the Lord, because of Jesus, we can eat any food and not have to worry about ceremonial uncleanness. Think about that when you thank the Lord for lunch today. Now, this becomes clearer in the rest of the New Testament. In Acts 10, Peter receives a vision from the Lord uh, where, where a canvas is laid out in front of him with all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds. And the Lord tells him to eat. And Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So Peter, just the common fisherman, observed these rules. And remember what God said back to him. What God has made clean, do not call common. And in that same chapter, later on, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter's vision shows not only that all foods are clean, but salvation is free to all people. Paul says in Romans 7 that we are freed from the law in Christ, no longer bound to it. That's the first thing. Food can't defile. The second thing Jesus is implying is that since food can't defile us, no food, therefore, can cleanse us. So even if the Jew obeyed the Torah perfectly, it would not make him clean. That wasn't the purpose of the law. The law was given not to cleanse the people, but to teach the people. The law was given to them so that they would see how unclean they were in the midst of a holy God. From the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7, if, I had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If we had not known our sin, we would not know our need for cleansing, our need for a Savior. That's how we can still cherish and appreciate the law of God. It reveals us true things about His character. But as far as actual cleansing goes... We can't save ourselves. I can't say it clearer than Paul did in 1 Corinthians 8.8. He says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. We want so badly, though, it may not be food laws, but we want so badly to use the law to measure our own righteousness, don't we? We want to use the law to tally up how good we are But the law was never meant to do that. And it's a hopeless thing to do, really. The law was meant to show us how needy we are. It was given to show us the kind of righteousness that we did not have. And those reoccurring sacrifices that were a part of the law were given to show that a greater sacrifice was needed. That greater sacrifice was provided in Christ Jesus who willingly went to the cross on our behalf. He's the only person who has ever walked the earth and perfectly obeyed the law. 
He's the only person who can stand before God based on his own righteousness. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus is the only way that we can change our standing before God. Our hearts are defiled and we need new hearts. Jesus offers us that by His Spirit. He promises to give us hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone, to use the language of the prophets. Promises His Spirit. And that leads me to the fourth and final pitfall leading to hypocrisy. Fourth, assuming that you are by default good. Assuming that you are by default good. Similar to the previous point, uh, I'll grant you that. But this is the core of the entire message, that we are not good on the inside, which is totally the opposite of the way the world thinks, isn't it? And you would think that between just a little knowledge of history and news today, people would agree about this. There's no lack of evidence. Uh, If you want some, ask any parent in the room. They'll tell you that kids don't need to be taught how to do bad things. They do need to be taught how to do good things because it's already inside them. It's not a matter of where someone is from or what kind of home they grew up in, whether they are rich or poor. There's no circumstance from which to remove someone from that would suddenly make them a good person. That's why sin has infected every part of humanity throughout history. This is what's wrong with the world today. The evil of the world did not come about on its own. It came from sinful people. When Jesus says that no food can defile someone, his logic in verse 15 is that it's because defilement is expelled from the inside out. That's why he says again in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. This has been true about every person who's ever lived since Adam and Eve in the garden, with the exception of Jesus. This teaching of Jesus is consistent with the rest of the Bible. And if you want to read in greater detail how your heart leads to sin, I would just recommend you read through Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks about sinful actions growing from the heart. The heart is like a seed in the ground, and when it grows, it bears sinful fruit. When you think about it, every sin begins with some kind of desire or sinful thought. Sin flows from the control center of the heart. That's why James 1, 14 and 15 says that everyone is tempted out of their own desires, and when they are lured and tempted by our desire... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings death. Just look at the list of sins in verses 21 through 22. Have you ever harbored any of these in your heart? Sexual immorality. Theft. Doesn't matter the size. Murder. Remember Jesus says murder begins with anger. Adultery. Jesus says, if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Believe it or not, this is not an exhaustive list. But it pretty much covers the bases, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, you already know these things to be true. You know that we are by default sinful. It's the only way that we can find Christ. We would not know our need of our Savior if the Spirit had not convicted us or shown us our sin. And yet even still, after experiencing the grace of Christ's forgiveness, we forget how sinful we are. And so we're surprised or discouraged when we fall to it. But friend, isn't that just another form of pride? That you would think yourself above a particular sin? Rather, it should humble us. As we're reminded of our weaknesses, it should cause us to cling ever more tightly to Christ. Paul describes his relationship with sin as a war within himself. He says his flesh craves sinful desires, but his mind serves God. For the Pharisees, their traditions created a foothold for people to think they could purify themselves with what they do. In their case, it was washing or eating a particular way. But we think the same way. And one result of thinking that way is we begin to believe the lie that deep down we are actually good. And if you believe you are by default good, you're headed towards the destination of hypocrisy. Our hearts are defiled. But praise be to God that he made a way for us to be clean. Not with reoccurring sacrifices every year. Not with more laws to follow. He would have given another law if that was the case. No, the law was to point us to the perfect righteousness seen in Christ Jesus. For those who have trusted in him, his blood washes the crimson stain from us and makes us white as snow. Our sin is nailed to the cross with him. And his righteousness is given to us. He's given us New hearts, so that when we stand before God, God sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, because you are not like us. Since the garden, our race has been actively rebelling against you. Yet you sent your Son to be the propitiation, the ransom for us. Help us to rely on nothing and to boast in nothing but Christ and Him crucified. For by His death and resurrection, we have died and rise to new life ourselves. Help us by Your Spirit to walk according to Your statutes and keep us far from any kind of self-righteous or legalistic hypocrisy, we pray.